we are on. I'm trying to make this as slick as possible. And uh, let me get my friend Chris in the house. There we go. You should be seeing both of us at this point. And I'm going to unmute him. Done deal. How do you like that one, Chris? That was a nice ride in. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) It's good to be back with you. Thanks, man. Uh, Good to be back with you, too. Uh, We are going to be looking at uh, some more Klein today, of course. Um, Although it doesn't have to be the case every time, Chris. You know, so feel free to, if you want to talk about stuff that you do or, um, you know, stuff that you're writing, stuff that you're thinking about, we're still going to get to your PhD dissertation at some great point. Um, But every now and again, we we sort of, I'm just trying to keep it in the flow of conversation. And I think we ended up uh, mentioning this when we were looking at the image of God for some reason. I think we, we spoke about a Hodges um, one covenant construction that, that Klein writes. So I thought good little follow up. Let's uh, let's make sure that we uh, look at that it, because it's one of those things you could just quite easily never know about. It's it's on the um, the uh, Meredith Klein webpage. I think uh, we're really lucky to have this thing, right? Who's Bull Bold, yes. uh, Bull Baldwin? Try to say he, that ten uh, times fast. <laughs> <laughs> he was um, a contemporary of. Lee Irons, uh, when Lee was a student at Westminster. So they were there together, graduated together. Um, and Bill was also a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Southern California with Lee. Um, and he ended up having to, I don't remember what the technical term was, but he basically had to step down from his pastoral position because he, he got this like, um, severe fatigue that he just couldn't shake and just like basically couldn't get out of bed for days on end just because he was too exhausted wow and uh yeah so okay hearing you talk i think um did you have him on glory cloud at one point talking about literary framework and he really had to like conserve all of his energy leading up to that just to be able to do that podcast with us wow that's crazy ah sorry to hear that i found that that episode really good um, I love the way he broke it down. He just had some good insights. You can tell you that he had uh, warred through the process a little bit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, had to be sharp on what he was saying. Uh, I think it was something to do with his presbytery exam or something. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, wow. Okay, that's uh, sorry to hear it. But anyways, one of the way that that he, um, uh, I mean, it says these are his handwritten notes. Um, you know, and uh, I suppose my first thought is that if he hadn't prepared these and written these down for us, we wouldn't have this, right? Exactly. Uh, you guys would maybe have heard this stuff at, at, at one point, but um, certainly I feel this is crazy valuable. It kind of does, he does reference Kingdom Prologue a few times, and I think you could probably deduce this from from Klein's uh, other writings, but it's just good to have these things clearly stated, you know, and just uh, you get to kind of almost ask him a question and you're the answer. Right. I get the impression that this was um, Bill staying after class and right. asking Meredith a question and yeah. <laughs> realizing, I better write this down and keep it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can imagine you can imagine him pulling out his notebook and going, you know what, uh, this is gold. I'm getting this down. Speak slowly, yeah. please. So what was that again? <laughs> um, awesome. So <clears throat> in terms of uh, what we're looking at here, it's called Comments on A.A. Hodges' One Covenant Construction. Um, now, one of my first thoughts is, uh, when you say one covenant, um, you know, I think mono-covenantal, and, you know, as far as I'm aware, mono-covenant would, would mean one covenant. 
Um, but what I have in mind when I say monocovenantal is different to what he's speaking about here. I have in mind, uh, and let's just make sure that we're calibrating uh, before we go on to this. Uh, I think of of one, you know, when people speak of monocovenantal uh, theology, they're typically talking about um, a covenant of grace, essentially, that runs right through. Um, so we're thinking about that which happens in time, temporally, um, and there being a, a singular construction, um, grace and works um, merged together. Um, and really, this is unhindered by the fall in, in many ways in that you just sort of, God gives everything to Adam by grace. He then has to obey and he receives his um, reward for his obedience. Uh, and it's all kind of happening in a Roman Catholic way in, in, in that sense. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the the nature of the grace changes after the fall and that now it has to cover sin as well. But it, it's still the same construction all the way through. And, um, and I suppose one of the big things there would be, well, you know, maybe just before we move on to anything else, I mean, is that, is that more or less how you would understand the term mono-covenantal or mono-covenant? Yes. Okay. Um, right. And Sorry. so I, I think that what, I mean, I don't mean to steal your thunder, so no, tell no, me no. to stop if, if I'm steal doing away. that. But... I got no thunder. <laughs> so you'd be adding thunder. Um, <laughs> and it would be I, my genius to make you think you stole it. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I think that when he's talking about one covenant, uh, Meredith might have in mind what he's doing in, say, Bioth Consigned, right. where he likes to talk about redemptive covenant. Yes. So if we translate that into how we normally talk about things, he's talking about the covenant of grace and saying, I've changed my mind since Bioth Consigned, and now I see a distinction between the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. Right. Good. So, I mean, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here and um, it's maybe just a, a kind of a, maybe the better way to be talking about it would be the the bi-covenant versus tri-covenant schema that you right. often, you know, hear about in that what we're actually talking about is the validity of a bi-covenantal structure. You know, is there a place, should there be, should the whole covenant system be thought of in terms of an eternal covenant happening outside of time? prior to the creation, if, if you could even speak that way, uh, into Trinitarian um, arrangement, a covenant that then brings forth uh, what we see in history by way of the two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So uh, that's more on the radar yeah. So just, a, you know, I think that could be potentially confusing as someone goes into this, just 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 making sure we're, we're covering. Although the interesting thing is, and we'll get you without making it too complex at this point, what Klein does is he shows you that actually they end up being very similar in, in, in the in the problem, because they end up kind of fusing works and grace uh, in a in a weird way. But let me let me uh, delay on that one b before this uh, we get ahead of ourselves. Um, as far as I'm aware, and just correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, um, Hodge was okay. I mean, he wanted to, in terms of just what we would think about as monocovenantal and, and the whole covenant of grace in time construction thing, he was wanting to bring out the difference between uh, law and grace, at least by way of his intent, right? He wanted to, he wanted to show that it was right. a works covenant in the garden and not a works covenant after the fall. Exactly. Okay. So that's, you see, I mean, that's another reason that, I mean, A.A. Hodge isn't the enemy in that sense. Um, right. Even though 
you know, so it's not like you could put him directly with Shepard or Murray or those guys who are kind of doing that exact thing. But, but again, what's kind of interesting is that it ends up it ends up sort of uh, fusing in that direction down the line. So uh, let's keep looking at this. Um, I'll go ahead and just kind of get us started. I'm, I'm wanting, wanting to just kind of move through the first part. And then the last part is just where you've got A.A. Hodge's um, actual quotes and, and that sort of thing. So we'll, uh, I don't think I'll even aim to get, to get through that uh, in this episode um, or even at all. But, but really, I'm just interested in the way that he's positively presented the whole thing. And then he really ties the, the ends together at the end. So that, that'll work great to just read it through. Um, if you start with point one, um, he says, Scripture records an historical process of redemptive administrations in the form of a series of covenants, Abrahamic, etc., culminating in the new covenant. And uh, this is what we would typically speak of, right, Chris, as, as the covenant of grace. Yes. This is what's happening in time. This is after fall. This is redemptive. This is not pre-fall, etc. So just so that we're on the same page there. Um, and yet, of course, we know, as he mentions here, that th- there's something else going on that doesn't quite fit into that rubric. So he says, Scripture also points to a divine arrangement behind the Messiah's advent and mission. For example, uh, and he quotes here John six thirty-eight: I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. Um, and, um, and, and that of course is, is a direct reference there to this thing going on that is what is powering Jesus's mission. Essentially he is, uh, he understands that he is, he's someone that is doing, um, what the father has sent him to do, essentially something that was a clear arrangement in eternity and something that we would clearly speak about as the eternal covenant, the redemptive covenant, the, uh, at least the covenant of redemption, the uh, what do we call Pactum Salutis? What else do we want to call it? Right. It goes by a few names. Uh, <laughs> I know Baptists sometimes like to call it just the Eternal Covenant because that's what it says in Hebrews. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so <laughs> so if we want to try and peg it to a scripture. But anyways, uh, we're we're talking about something there that is um, prior to to Jesus' mission and um, uh, eternal. Now he goes on to say this arrangement was one of the covenant commitments made by the Father and Son and thus divinely sanctioned, that's important, commitments to fulfill tasks and to give rewards. As reflected in Jesus' claim, and this is from John 17, 5, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world began. So that, I mean, you really couldn't ask for a clearer passage there. I mean, so what's worth noting for me there is that you have um, the definition of a covenant come through. You know, it's an earthbound commitment with sanctions, and that's basically what's going on, right? Um, there is something uh, that is uh, yes. clearly represented happening in eternity. Moreover, it's a, it's a works-based thing. Um, so it's a beautiful text and uh, a great way to describe it. I don't know if you got any... Uh, any comments to add uh, on the lead up here? Chris, you there? Just that I th- hello. You got hey, me. Sorry, back? lost you. You're back. Okay, good. Yeah, it was that you were giving me going... the 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 Yoda look, and, um, and <laughs> you know it was just super deep, super contemplative. I was thinking, oh, we're on something big, uh, and then I realized Zoom had frozen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love technology until it decides to have a mind of its own. Exactly. Um, 
so I just I think that between um, Bioth Consigned and Kingdom Prologue, John 17, 5 and 6 made a huge impression on Meredith Klein because right. he would he would belabor this these two verses in class. Um, so he really wanted to stress to us that this meant that Jesus was under a covenant of works personally. Yeah. Wow. Um, I can see why, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. and again, he'll get there in a second, but how on earth are you going to give account to that? I mean, you've got a different role for Jesus ultimately that we have to account for here somehow. And, um, and you know, you got to get that on paper, right? And you've got to be able to be able to map it out theologically. And, and so the, the, the covenant system or covenant theology in its uh, threefold schema has been able to do that, um, whereas the, the twofold has, has typically struggled. Um, so, yeah, okay, that's good to know because you can see it come through. Um, did you say between Bioth Consigned and Kingdom Prologue? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, all right, where was I on this? Um, okay, uh, the, he says such a commitment transaction is precisely what constitutes a covenant in biblical usage. Um, and so that's important because obviously he's going to mention people like Murray uh, and, um, you know, and I think why he mentions Murray there, correct me if I'm wrong, is just he's, you know, it's almost a biblicist thing coming through there in that you're looking for the word. If the word isn't there, it's, you know, we're not going to call it that. And, you know, obviously we can't do that. Let me just read the section. He says, to refuse, like Murray, to call such an arrangement a covenant on the grounds that the Bible allegedly doesn't happen to apply that label to it is methodologically wrongheaded and totally arbitrary. And uh, he references the discussion in Kingdom Prologue there. But, I mean, I'm thinking, I don't know if you've got any other examples here, but the Trinity, you know, or, or just anything. Right. Uh, you know, you've, you've got tons of theology that just doesn't work. Uh, on a, a strict solo scriptura sort of biblicist scheme, and and I agree one hundred percent. I mean, it, it's it gets arbitrary, it gets um, biblicist. It starts even, I, you know, not to push this too far, but you know, it's it's just interesting. Every now and again, I'm reminded of of the the early church controversy and Arius, and um, you know, just how they were the biblicists of the day, uh, the right. Arians. You know, they they did not like mm-hmm. the Trinity. They um, it's almost like it's almost like that such a slap and a kiss because they're always the guys claiming in history you see the guys claiming to be the big biblical guys you know we just want the bible just bible 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 and they're always the guys who are rejecting the key cardinal doctrines and ending up the the heretics that's a good point um and so i mean it's not limited just to the reformed tradition you pointed out um you know the arians and the doctrine of the trinity um, Martin Luther uh, complained about the same thing, um, you know, because Rome was saying, well, you can't find the phrase faith alone yes, in the Bible. That's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> True. So <laughs> now, so you got Trinity and faith alone. I mean, dude, do you need anything else? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I mean, this is really, uh, wow, this, that should be enough to show you that it is methodologically wrongheaded and totally arbitrary <laughs> and uh, we could we could throw in more serious stuff than that even um but uh, okay so you know he's saying look it's there right by by your and you know obviously this ties into his big discussion about what constitutes a covenant and by earth consigned is important there as well we've covered that in the previous session um 
just how do we get to what is a covenant and uh, how do we build, how do we arrange all of that? How do we see that? Well, based on all of that and leaving that to be exegetically argued at different points, you know, look, this is this is what it is. There it is. It's a you know that's what constitutes a covenant. And look, it's based on on, on works. Um, so there's something there that we have to consider. Um, to ref- uh, we've looked at that. Now, the next part, uh, moreover, Jesus in Luke 22. Now, this is the part you brought out in your book. I remember reading this in your book and, and freaking out. Uh, moreover, <laughs> Jesus in Luke 22, uh, 29 and 30 likens to uh, one another, the intra-Trinitarian arrangement and his own administration of the new covenant to his disciples, denoting both transactions by the verbal source of the Atheke. Uh, in fact, this text not only provides specific biblical warrant for calling the intra-Trinitarian. Am I right in saying he preferred the term intra-Trinitarian to inter-Trinitarian? Yes, um, and Steve Baugh, who teaches Greek at Westminster, um, pointed out to us one day that inter means between two different things. And so he says, you don't have two different trinities. Right, there we go. You have one trinity and it's in tr- within that trinity. <laughs> I like it, good. So that's why he's, if anyone's worrying, uh, wondering about that, I found that kind of illuminating. Uh, <laughs> so for calling, uh, so where did I leave off? Uh, in fact, this text not only provides specific biblical warrant for calling the intra-Trinitarian arrangement covenant, but provides precedent as well for distinguishing the two covenantal arrangements within the total redemptive order. So um, uh, he quotes Luke 22 there. Um, and uh, again, this is something you might, if you're listening to this, you might have, uh, you might remember this when we discussed this back uh, looking at Chris's book, but I'll just go ahead and read it. Um, Luke 22 verse 28. Um, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Obviously Jesus speaking to his disciples, and I assign to you, this is, uh, I think I got the ESV here, I assign to you, uh, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. And it goes on, just for context, that you may eat and drink at my table uh, in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Do you want to give us a quick rundown as to why that's important and what's going on there? Yeah, so, um, and what Klein is pointing out here in what you read before you read the passage um, is that the Greek word for covenant, which is diatheke, is behind the word that you read there as assigned. Um, right. It's, uh, a, it's a... Sorry, Jeffrey. It's a slightly different form of it, but, um, I mean, scholars would definitely agree that it is that word for covenant that's behind it. And yeah. so it's completely legitimate to render that as... My father has covenanted with me a kingdom, and now I covenant a, a kingdom with you. Yeah. Uh, and so the word there um, uh, is uh, diatithemai, which um, is, uh, I just pulled up the first thing on on Lagos. I mean, I've got the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domain, Swanson's. And, um, you know, so I just didn't even bother looking. I just pulled up the first thing that I hit. And um, it says... Um, to make a will, um, to offer uh, property by means of a will, uh, or in other words, a specific kind of covenant, uh, to make a covenant. 
<laughs> like literally, you know. So it, there you it, go. it's really not a stretch to, it feels very legitimate to come back to what you were saying there when you, it's almost like, you know, you pull out strongs and it's the first thing strong says. You don't even have to get more <laughs> technical than that. You just, there it is, you know. Um, it's like uh, agape, love. All right, sweet, move on. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you, you're in, you're in, you're in your rights to kind of interpret or at least understand uh, that uh, in some sort of covenantal way. And so think about how powerful that is. Um, you've got a uh, clear statement here, not only that's talking about the reality of the, the receiving of the kingdom as a, the, the fruit of this covenantal arrangement with Christ, with uh, Jesus and, and, and uh, God, the son, God, the father, but, but also the way that it, I mean, Jesus himself is like, again, however we want to get this down on paper, Jesus himself clearly has two ways of distinguishing what's going on in eternity and the mirroring of that in time with the covenant of grace. So it's just a really powerful text to bring out everything. It almost reminds me of, although uh, you wouldn't have the same semantic domain and it wouldn't be as direct, but um, think about, for example, where Jesus says, as I was sent, so I send you. You know, right. uh, all the the missiology guys love that, but you know, really, if we think about this in terms of its, uh, you know, the equivalent covenantal context, Jesus is saying the same thing. As I was sent by the Father on this mission, so I am, uh, you know, really going to commission you uh, according to this new covenant as a culmination of the covenant of grace. So there is an in time and an out of time thing going on, and really, you have to be able to articulate that in some way. Again, uh, the the tri covenantal. Uh, method of reformed theology is, you know, is one attempt to do that. I would say the best um, so far. So then we go on to. Uh, I don't know if there's anything more you wanted to add there before we move on to point two. You good? All right. No, I'm um, good. Okay. Uh, point two. There are several. This is where we get into it. This, there are several major differences between the two covenantal arrangements. Uh, differences with respect to fundamental matters like their parties and governing principles, which demand different labels for the two, uh, for present purposes, eternal covenant and covenant of grace. Um, all right. So, I mean, I would say that would be more the standard sort of approach of looking at this thing. You're like, well, you know, look at it. I mean, we've got to think about this. We've got, as he says uh, later on, we've, you, you're conceiving of Jesus in two different ways, uh, covenant Lord, covenant servant, but the parties themselves, I mean, who are they? You've got to you've got to find a way to talk about Jesus and the arrangement that he has with the Father, and then you've got to find a way to talk about the way that Jesus has an arrangement with the church, right? And so you've got to you've got to be able to think about that in some way. Um, and if you don't have two different covenants, um, it gets complicated. Uh, well, I think that works really well with what you just pointed out about the sending, yes. uh, because. The purpose that the father sent the son for is completely different than the purpose that the son sent sends the apostles out for. That's a great point. Yeah, wow. It's um, and and maybe even is a a real point to to labor in light of the the neo Calvinist kind of hey let's pick it up from where Adam left and 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 go mm -hmm. from there. You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so in terms of um, looking at the concrete details, he says in point one there, sub point one, uh in the covenant of grace as clearly seen in its new covenant administration, uh, Christ is the Lord of the covenant who administers it to the covenant servant community. But in the eternal covenant, Christ is assigned the role of covenant servant whom the father Lord covenantly commissions. 
So again, I mean, that's a, a, a beautifully lucid way to look at it. Beyond the parties of the covenant, you just have the role of Jesus himself. You know, you've got to, again, some, you've just got to theologize that somehow. You've got to, Jesus is the servant. And it's true that he is, he, he is um, the servant of the church, you know, uh, in, in that he died for her. But how, though, is the question. And, in, you know, and, and he is our Lord. And how? And as soon as you start probing into those things, you realize, well, uh, he, he's our, he became our servant as the last Adam, which is really the expression of that eternal covenant of, of works. As a, um, and uh, we're, we're talking about something completely different when we think about our own um, uh, submission to him as Lord. So that you have, you have a very, very good and lucid reason there for coming up with two covenants. Um, then in point two, he says, in the series of administrations, of the covenant of grace, the covenant is made by the Lord with those who confess the faith in their children. The covenant membership includes others than the elect. They are not all elect Israel who are of covenant Israel. But the eternal covenant is made by the Father with the Son in his appointed status as second Adam, and thus, in keeping with the parallel between the federal headship arrangements in the covenants with the two Adams, with those represented by Christ as as federal head, excuse me, uh, in other words, the elect and them exclusively. Um, and then uh, he says, let me just quickly read this part, then we can make some comments here. Uh, it, may, it may be observed here that although Hodge's construction is supposed to be in the interest of bringing out the parallel between the covenants with the two Adams, it actually obscures it by merging the eternal covenant with an arrangement, including some not represented by the second Adam. So here's where, and later on he talks about the making a covenantal hash out of two separate covenant, uh, out of two separate dishes, which I like. But um, all right, what is he saying here at this point? That um, the the covenant membership is different uh, when you look at who um, Jesus is intending to save in the covenant of redemption and who is actually on the membership roles in the covenant of grace. Yeah, good. And, and you know, let me uh, be quick to, to point out there, um, just, you know, the, at least in terms of an Old Testament perspective, um, you know, Baptists would 100% agree with that. Well, should agree with that. You get some that don't, unfortunately. But, um, you know, in terms of um, what I would see, let me just keep it to myself. Let me not represent anyone. Baptists don't like to represent other Baptists. We're autonomous. <laughs> We're an autonomous people. So uh, let me just talk for myself in my own house here. But um, basically, you know, I think it is true that you have to, obviously, you know, you've got an administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. That's different from those who are uh, in, uh, ultimately going to um, be in heaven. You know, and, and really that, that that's something that everyone just, again, has to reckon with even before you get to the New Testament and what you do with baptism. But I would even say uh, that in the New Testament, you know, you've got to, you know, and this is where it gets, uh, we're going to make a few comments about that in a second when he, he mentions uh, the Baptist conception of the, the church. But um, you've got to be able to factor this in in the New Covenant somehow as well, even as a Baptist. So I think the point is well taken and um, and. I'll say this in a second, but, you know, John Gill is always my go-to reference here because he didn't do that. And voila, you end up with all sorts of problems. Uh, love John Gill, but he was kind of a little little, um, little high on that high Calvinism. And, um, <laughs> and I think this was one of the reasons for that. So uh, anything else you wanted to say from that one? 
Um, oh, you know what I wanted to mention here, quick. Um, the he he says that Hudge wants to kind of bring out the parallels of the two atoms, and this is kind of what mm-hmm. we were mentioning before by way of the works thing. Um, which is good. We like that. That's good. That's 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 not a problem. The interesting thing, though, is that by merging, and this is what I was referring to earlier, by by merging this this uh, this really this eternal works principle, and you see this come out in Bioearth Bioearth consigned as well, you know, and uh, and you know thinking about a, a covenant that is purely by grace. What you're actually doing by squashing the time and eternity factor is actually merging uh, law and grace, which is, you know, it's just not really very intuitive to think about it that way. But the interesting thing is that you come all the way through that means you come all the way back to where Murray is in terms of his one covenant construction and merging um, law and grace on uh, in his way. Uh, And so, you know, and of course, when that happens, you know, Klein breaks out in a rash. So, (laughs) you know, uh, now the fact is he he kind of had to deal with his own book in that regard and uh, it kind of freaked him out and this is why he didn't want anyone reading that part of it but but you know again you can see how through that that own fiery trial that he had to go through in terms of just thinking about it uh he's very lucid on it now he's going listen you know one, if, if you go that way you're gonna end up with works and grace if you go that way you're gonna end up with works and grace so let's just keep it in mind uh that if you at all value the the uh, distinction, or at least the antithesis here between works and grace, you need to you need to not fall into these traps. Amen. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's just it's so crazy to me how Klein. Someone mentioned um, where was it? It might have been in his uh, where his son was writing about him in that in that intro or biography. Maybe maybe you remember what I'm talking about here. I can't remember where I read this, but. But he was Vantillian, uh, very shaped by by Vantil, and beyond the normal stuff that we would think about in terms of Vantil, uh, it might have been Kahlberg actually, as I'm thinking about who mentioned this, but um, that like the way Klein processed things was uh, in terms of its entire system. You know, he he looked mm. at the whole thing, and if something didn't work, not not only as a part but as a whole, and it's you know, systemic entirety, or there was a word that, that, that was used there to describe the way he thought about something, almost like the way Vantil would bring a whole worldview down to its rudiments and then it's just going to fall apart, you know, at the base if you're not, if you're not thinking about it as a whole. Um, he almost took that and applied it methodologically or looked at it, uh, various uh, systems of theology that way. And just thinking about uh, the the paper that he wrote to the faculty about John Frame and multi-perspectivalism and this, I mean, I'm just seeing the two ways in which he does that right there. He just goes, listen, this is why this thing is actually not going to work. You got this hole in view and um, it falls right. apart as you consider it at that whole level by way of the law grace antithesis. So, and that really makes Klein stand out. Um, I mean, I have not read all theologians by a long shot, so I can I can just say that within the Reformed tradition, this really makes Meredith Klein stand out because, um, as even Mike Horton says, theologians, especially biblical uh, theologians who are dealing with the biblical text uh, mm. immediately, um, tend to be either forest guys or tree guys, right? But but not both. And what you're saying is that Meredith Klein could see both the forest and the trees 
Um, and it just set him in a category by himself. That is a great point. Yeah, a great way to put it too. Exactly. Um, exactly. He did. He saw both, you know. I mean, you just read through Kingdom Prologue. Wow. Mm -hmm. You've got both. <laughs> You've got down to the tiniest little detail there getting just scrutinized and uh, woven into this big system. It is absolutely right. It's what it sets it apart and uh, makes makes uh, reading his theology so profound because your brain's just going, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> it's sort of the... Uh, expanding and contracting something or other going on there. Um, yeah. It might be the the feeling of what what happens when your brain grows. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you can actually feel it growing. Um, right. All right, cool. So uh, in, in point three, I think, is where we're at. Uh, in the covenant of grace, the principle governing reception of the kingdom blessing is grace, but in the eternal covenant, it is works. So again, we've kind of alluded to this already, but look at that. It is just um, a vivid reality that you have to account for in some way. Um, he says in, uh, in, in point three now, uh, big head point three, uh, in his one covenant construction, A. Hajj is obliged. I think this is the first time he actually mentioned, oh no, he does mention Hajj before, but he's obliged to eventually uh, to take account of the major differences between the eternal in intra-Trinitarian arrangement and what he calls the several modes of administration. But his effort to integrate these contrary features into his eternal covenant of grace is not successful. Uh, there are alien features there, um, awkward contradictions forcibly intruded where they do not fit. He succeeds only in making a covenantal hash out of two distinct covenantal dishes. I wonder if he has in mind something of what he tried to do in By Earth Consigned as he says that. You know, because you see, I think he probably succeeded in, in the best yeah. way that you could ever succeed in doing something like that. But, you know, you could see, I mean, some of that language is just like, what? You know? <laughs> but, yeah. And one of the things that I think clarified his thinking on this was the Norman Shepherd controversy. Yes, and good it point. And him look back at Bioth Consigned and say, whoa, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I could have given um, Shepherd a... a a door to drive through there. So let's right. close that door. Right. Totally. And you know, I mean, you know, as you, as you pointed out, um, last time, I mean, I, and I think this is hundred percent true. You read through it. It's the same thing. It's not like bios consigned is, I mean, he's driving at the same point. It's that law priority thing going on, but he is, I mean, as he's just stated, yeah, it's, it just becomes this incredibly difficult task. It, it becomes not a possible thing ultimately because you're doing, you're trying to, you know, mash two things into the same, um, uh, system there. And, 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 you know, I think he guarded everything as much as he could, you know, in, in what he was saying. But ultimately, you will open a door for something like Shepard. It's inevitable. So, yeah, it's interesting how that happens. And it's just uh, what a great sort of illustration of the way that a controversy can bring out um, clarity in thinking. And, um, yeah. and, and, and you see that. So, okay, there we go. Um, the covenantal hash is what we want to avoid. Um, the Bible's own example indicates the wisdom of distinguishing the two redemptive arrangements as two distinct covenants for in the divine wisdom the scriptures distinguish as different covenants the abrahamic mosaic and new covenants changed by hodge to modes of administration that's an interesting point as well uh, in spite of their con continuity in unity well what is he driving at there because i mean you know why i like that because i i like to distinguish and i don't know i don't know if this is uh, what klein is saying exactly yet, but but one of the things i wish was more pronounced and just you know, you often don't see this articulated in, in when you read stuff on covenant theology. 
uh, is that you know you do have these modes of administration of a single covenant of grace, but they're they're different exegetical covenants, you know, and and really mm-hmm. I would see the covenant of grace being a theological construct based on the exegetical arrangements, which it doesn't the, the way some people talk about it sometimes, it makes it sound like the covenant of grace is just you know as an expression as you know, you you almost expect to find it somewhere in the Bible along with the rest of them or a sum up of every covenant, you know, at, at the end of the Bible in Malachi or something. Uh, but, it, you know, it again, and I suppose it folds back on that previous point in Biblicism. But, you know, we're building on those exegetical realities to see, look, it's saying the same thing. Look, it's administering the same thing differently. Look, it's basically the same covenant grace arising out of that promise. Um that's why we call it theologically a covenant of grace, and so you know I don't know if um, th- there's something there that he's driving at, um, but I do like that distinguishing point anyway. Um, I mean th- this will steal a little bit of Klein's own thunder. Uh, well, actually, he's just about to say it in the next. Um, you need to start stealing thunder. But... You need to. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think what he's saying is Hodge is being. Um, very maybe even woodenly um confessional here okay um cool and that's this is the language of the westminster confession yes two administrations of one covenant of grace right right and klein is wanting to be um more nuanced yes yes exactly um you've got that john ball kind of um westminster covenantal you know it's kind of it's the it's the kind of you know, not to make this a Baptist Presbyterian thing, but it's kind of the it's the one that the it's the it's the version of covenant theology that the Baptists don't like. You know, where it's just <laughs> flattening everything out yeah. and just talking about uh, there's just no sense of progressional uh, or at least a redemptive progression and unfolding. Um, and and obviously one of the big lure, luring points. Um, well, you know, again, just thinking about this from a Baptist perspective, because you know the whole thing for us is that by the time we get to the New Covenant, you've got this major pinnacle, and you know, I know that many would accuse Baptists of overstating that and maybe taking that too far, but at least what we can see together there is that there is an you need that unfolding factor. So, Vas, Amen, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, Klein, Amen, because they're wanting to rip it out of that that confessional language that did tend to flatten it out in our view. So, um, you know, that, amen. That's exactly what I was trying to drive at anyway, via, via a different approach. So, yeah, good. Uh, the scriptures do so because of uh, certain differences between them, even though these are relatively slight compared to the fundamental differences we have noted between the eternal covenant and the covenant of grace. Okay, so he's just saying, listen, there's merit for, for keeping these things distinguished. Uh, through its failure to distinguish satisfactorily, uh, satisfactorily the two very different arrangements in the redemptive order and the resulting resultant blurring together of contradictory elements, the one covenant construction of A.A. Hodge and uh, the Westminster, etc., has at least these liabilities. Now he's going to give us two Um and I think that brings us to the end of what we want to talk about. Yeah. All right. So number one, it leads to a definition of the covenant community, the church, in baptistic terms as consisting of believers or the elect, contrary to the Presbyterian doctrine that the church consists of those who profess uh, Christian faith and their children. Um, so all I'd want to add there is that, you know, I totally get where he's going. I see what he's saying. And it's certainly true of some but I don't think Baptists should ever conceive of the church that way anyway. Um, 
certainly as we think about the Old Testament, there needs to be more nuance going on there. Um, and even in the New Testament, I think what you, you know, there is, uh, you know, as soon as you start thinking about the church or the visible community, at, at least, um, in terms of only the elect, you end up in sort of some severe introspective hyper-Calvinism. And again, I mentioned, um, in fact, what I would refer anyone to, if they are interested as Baptists, to know more of what I'm talking about here. Uh, Tom Askell wrote a great dissertation a while back now. It's 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 old, um, but you can get it. And um, it's a comparative analysis between Andrew Fuller and John Gill on this exact issue, on, on uh, whether there needs to be a covenant of grace and a covenant of redemption as in Baptist theology, essentially. Um, you know, or, or if it's okay to just say, well, you know what, we, we're kind of conceiving of, of we're, we're bringing them so closely anyway. We're organizing the church around those who profess faith. Why bother with the, with the whole sort of earthly version of mm. it, so to speak? And, uh, you know, he looks at it, and what was so helpful about it is he, he shows, okay, well, certainly as you look through Reformed thought, you can see how the Presbyterian angle plays out here. But even in Baptist thought, it becomes essential, and it's for for reasons that obviously are, go beyond what we've spoken about here. But it it becomes essential to have that in time um, uh, reality of the covenant of grace. Uh, if for no other reason than just to keep the time factor different from the eternity factor with, with things like justification, um, you know, otherwise you do end up. The next step is to just kind of blur them and and go well, eternal justification, and uh, there's right. no sort of temporal outworking of what is decreed in eternity. Uh, but then also, I would I would say, and and I you know I'm not entirely settled on this, but I think that um, you know I, I I would like to hear someone look at this carefully. Um, I don't know of anyone that actually holds this as a Baptist, but almost like you could take. I think there wouldn't really be a logical problem in taking everything that Klein says, just as is, without any alterations at all, and just going after profession of faith. Because <laughs> what you'd end up with, with uh, is a, um, a covenant community that includes the non-elect. It's part of the new covenant. It's, you know, you'd even have children in there who've professed faith. Uh, you know, it'd just be, it's just kind of an interesting thought um, be a very simple way of bringing it over, but I've never seen anyone who who does that. Maybe maybe I'll I'll look at that down the line. Uh, <laughs> just one one thing at a time here. I'm just gonna get through my one right. one thing. It's amazing how you come up with all these great ideas when you have to do one one thing right. <laughs> like you know, the other day I was sitting there, I was about to start my chapter, and I'm like, all right, got some time, awesome. Let me crank some crank some words out here. Here we go. I'm like, first first five minutes, I'm thinking, I really need to master chess. I'm going to start playing chess. <laughs> Literally, I caught myself. Yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm going to start playing chess. And then I'm like, no, I'm not going to start playing chess. I'm going to keep cranking these words out. And I'm like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. <laughs> I need to get something to eat. Oh, dude. Anyway, so there's something. If anyone wants to look at that, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Um, um, anything you want to add there from an, an uh, well, what is it? An Anglican perspective? An <laughs> Anglican Lutheran perspective? <laughs> Um, no, um, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. I, I appreciate the comments that you made on it. All right, cool. Um, then we go on to, um, second point here and the last thing we want to talk about. So, uh, that works out well. It's getting on, uh, arguably as I suggested at the faculty forum, don't know what that was, where that was, uh, it has contributed by its formal fusing of the works of grace principles to the confusion of the two and even 
Oh, do you think that's talking about the same faculty paper pursuit thing? No? No, I wouldn't um, have. No, I think it's different. Okay. It sounds like this is maybe focused on the Shepherd era. Right. Okay, totally. Uh, it has contributed by its formal fusing of the works and grace principles to the confusion of the two and even the repudiation of the works principle in the teachings of Fuller uh, and Shepherd, etc. Um, even if the one covenant construction actually possessed the advantage of better displaying the kind of interrelationship that exists between the eternal covenant and the covenant of grace, that advantage would be far more than offset by the disadvantages of its obscuring the significant differences that obtain between these two covenants and its liability for serious errors arising from such confusion. So, amen. You know, a bit, I mean, all, all uh, I take him to be saying there is kind of what we've mentioned already in that you fire this long way in this, uh, this way that's not perhaps obvious and intuitive. You end up just um, fusing, you know, the works and grace by collapsing time and eternity, you end up doing what they don't do. Even if they don't collapse time and eternity, they do it sort of horizontally with the works, uh, pre-fall, post-fall, covenantal arrangements. And uh, as bad as that is, you know, we just we just don't, I mean, what has been made clear by Fuller and Shepard as being a total, you know, train smash of a problem, even if this isn't kind of as immediate and going, you know, so forcefully toward that same point, it's still the fact that it even moves in that direction is probably alone reason to stay away from it even if you end up just sort of squabbling at a kind of you know you end up sort of balancing these points out well it could work couldn't work even if you find a way to do that uh, it's still just on that point alone it should be left alone I think. exactly um so the analogy that i've been thinking of since we started talking today is you know you've got the the theologian that thinks that they have um solved the problem by just keeping the distinction between the covenant of works in the garden and the covenant of grace after that okay mm -hmm. we've we've maintained the law gospel distinction there but they don't realize that in collapsing the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace they've introduced the zombie virus into <laughs> that you know clean environment right and now the contagion is spreading that is such an apt illustration <laughs> We are. I mean, the fact that you didn't even reference Corona is amazing, <laughs> but it was so apt and so relevant. And um, I mean, we're talking relevant theology, people. See, we even brought coronaviruses into the picture. Well, <laughs> zombie I think, coronaviruses. I think that the the whole zombie genre is very theological. So I love it for that reason. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy the way the way the scene ends and everyone's kind of safe and then oh my goodness we realize even in the compound <laughs> and then it ends right there's it's yep. like, it's the, the enemy is within <laughs> every yep. time yep. yeah totally there's so much to talk about in the zombie genre um i should get you and joe thorn on for that oh yeah you guys do you, are you a big horror guy as well or not really no but i mean that's when i realized that i would love to yeah um pour a bourbon light a cigar and talk to joe thorn about all right. This is a zombie genre. It, it gets it. I've done that, and it it gets scary. <laughs> <laughs> a, uh, there's no other way to talk about it. It's just, um, man, that guy in horror. It's unbelievable. Yeah, we got we got to get John. I'll reach out to him. Uh, we, we're due, and um, and he'd be good to help us out on that. Um, he's actually writing a book about death as well, so he's right there in that zone. You know, oh, he's, yeah. he's feeling real dark. So we can get him on. Get dark. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. Um, 
hope that was helpful to you guys um, and at least just uh, opens you up to a um, article that you might not have known about or at least just you know tacks on to what you know about Klein or just confirms or helps you out to straighten out some points or gets you thinking about some points. Um, makes you hate Baptists even more, makes you love Baptists. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Just here to serve. Um, at that point, I'm going to play out now with my super slick play out. Um, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you, Mike. Thank you.